0: this week and next week, I'd like us to look at our mission statement and rally our hearts around it again. The last couple months, we have been looking at it really closely. We've actually made some tweaks to our mission statement, and I want to show you that today. Uh, Let me bring it up for you. So this is how we say it, the top part we haven't changed, but the bottom part we have for a number of reasons, and this is going to be two parts, we're going to deal with the first part today and the second part next week, and I'll explain the details of that, but it sounds like this, to help people discover who Jesus really is and live with, like, and for him now and forever. Will you say that with me? to help people discover who Jesus really is and live with, like, and for him now and forever. That is two parts, basically, to this mission. And when, when we say mission, this is essentially what we mean. Why we do everything. It's why you do everything. No matter what it is, whatever this church does, This is why you do it, to help people discover who Jesus really is and to live with him, like him, and for him now and forever. Uh, The first part is introducing people who do not know Christ, what we call evangelism, introducing people to Jesus who don't know him. The second part is what you do with a person who's come to know Jesus. You help them learn to live a life with him and what that looks like, which we'll unpack next week. Today, what does it mean for us, this is for us, to help people discover who Jesus really is? So we want everything that we do, how we live our lives when we're not together, and what we do when we are together, to present the clearest picture of who Jesus is, so that people will see what we see, And want him in their lives the way we have him. Very often, uh, people have some idea about who Jesus is that's not very accurate. Very often, it's not a studied position. It's partial. It's skewed. And years ago, I remember reading a quote by Joseph Aldrich. A book called Gentle Persuasion. He said, most people don't reject Christ." but some caricature of him. In other words, we we want people, if you're going to reject him, at least know what you're rejecting. But when you see him for who he really is, it'll change your view of God. So along the way, we pick up these wild ideas and these notions about who Jesus is that are simply inadequate or inaccurate. And it's understandable, really, for two good reasons why people are walking around with an inadequate view of who Jesus is. And the first one is us. We're like like one of the biggest problems to people seeing Jesus accurately. Because Christians over the years, over history, do horrible, immoral, and just plain dumb stuff. And we contribute to that inaccurate view of who Jesus is. But there's another reason. Jesus is simply not like anything you can imagine. He's not like anything you've ever seen before. You wouldn't imagine God to be the way he is unless you see who Jesus is. Walter Wink said, if Jesus hadn't lived, we would not have been able to invent him. He just does not come to anybody's mind. So to understand this part of our mission, why we're presenting Jesus as accurately as we can and why it's so important, it's not just a mandate. It's not just our biblical mandate. Jesus rises from the dead, gathers the disciples, says, this is what I want you to do. It's crystal clear in the scriptures. The New Testament leaves no doubt about what we're to do while we're here. Help people discover who Jesus is. It's not just the mandate. It reflects the very heartbeat of God. So we are going to look at Luke 15. Now, just so you know, a little history lesson. When we started Hillside in May of, actually February of 95, we celebrate May because it was our first public meeting in 95. But in February, we started meeting as a small group in my converted garage in Bedford. Uh, And for three months. And our basic text for the entire time was Luke 15. We just wanted to make sure all of us had our hearts right about what it was God wanted us to be concerned about. And that is people who don't know him yet. And so, uh, so I, I love the text. Uh, when you get to Luke 15, this is how Luke 15 begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This was a big deal in that culture. Eating with anyone meant that they were valuable to you, that you were friends, that you accepted them. Uh, And so here's something they didn't expect about Jesus. That he's tolerant, inclusive. That he's comfortable with unholy people. Comfortable. He's comfortable with outcasts. He likes being with the despised. Because that's what the tax gatherers were. It's very hard, I could spend all day long going into the history of a tax gatherer, but let me do it this way. If you're a conservative, that's a liberal. If if you're a liberal, it's a conservative. All right? If you're a Dallas fan, that's an Eagles fan right there. That's what we're talking about here. Those people. And they're all coming to him. Wait a minute. They're all going to him? That's the point of drawing near to him. They're all moving toward him. The other group, though, is grumbling. And the verb is intensive. It's like intense grumbling. They're miserable. They're supposed to be the religious ones, they're the spiritual ones. They represent us in the story. And they don't see Jesus right, and they don't see people right. That's a devastating concoction. They're so worried about how they look. They're so worried about their own righteousness, their self-righteousness. They're judgmental. They're smug. And they got a lot of things to do. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, at least the spiritual people, and same with us, we got a lot going on. We got a lot of spiritual activities to be a part of. Who has time for the outcasts? And so they've just completely missed it. Uh, and the spiritual ones. I mean, if you're one of the ones on your way to Jesus and you run into one of these grumblers, you're like, I don't think I'm going all the way. Because if he is anything like them, I'm out. Eventually, that's what happens. Thank God he was on the scene when he left, created a lot of problems. And then you ask the question, who's harder to reach? It's like God's biggest obstacle to reaching people who are the outcasts, is us. And it's almost like in Jesus's life, and you can see this if you've read the book of Jonah lately, God's biggest problem in evangelism is us not lost people, not people without him. He's got to convert us almost again before he can convert. God's got to move heaven and earth to get Jonah. The Ninevites come to Christ very easily, but Jonah, we don't even know what happens to Jonah at the end of the book. And the danger of our culture right now is that many of us have become grumblers. Angry, cynical, and it jeopardizes the mission. And it's hard to imagine when the Pharisees irked Jesus more than when they said this. And so Jesus tells them three parables. It's the only time he puts three stories together. As if to say, let me make it crystal clear about what makes God's heart beat fast. Now, what we're going to see when we look at this, those of us who are followers, is what is he like? And maybe we need to see what he really is like again. And then what makes him happy? And along the way, I hope you discover a few things that it hasn't dawned on you lately that that's I forgot Jesus is really like that. So two things happen in the three parables, three stories. Really, something's lost. Somebody goes looking for them, finds them, and they have a party at the end. There's a rejoicing at the end. In fact, the accent, by the way, is rejoicing, and the reason the accent is on rejoicing is because it's in contrast to the grumblers. In contrast to the grumblers, let me tell you three things about God and why he's so happy. Why what makes you upset makes me happy. This is an incredible thing. Uh, And I'm going to give you two of them because at the end of each of the story there's a celebration. Here's the first one. I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Oh, my Lord. How long has it been since you've heard that? Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then at the end of the next story, remember the father who welcomes the prodigal son home has a big celebration, represents God. So you have... Uh, let's see, you have joy in heaven, you have joy before the angels, and then you have the father himself as the host of the party in the next picture. So you got a representation of God being the host and really the party planner, and then you have heaven, angels, the whole place is just raucous over one sinner who repents. A completely different attitude than the grumblers have. And so here's my two questions for us, Hillside, when we talk about our mission. What are we looking for? Because in these parables, it's clear what God's looking for. And secondly, what are we happy about? What are we rejoicing in? The answer to those two questions, you'll know what your mission is. So, the three parables basically go, you got the shepherd, the one we read about. He's looking for a sheep. This is very common. A shepherd would leave 99 and go find one. Here's what you know about the shepherd he's very methodical. He just picks up and takes off, and he just doesn't know where he's going. He's just going to look one step after the other. He's not hurrying. You saw in the video, he's just slowly and methodically moving. Not much emotion. He just knows he's got to go find him. When I read about this, you think all three of these are illustrations of God. This is God saying, I'm like a shepherd who just realizes I've got one missing and I know exactly what I got to do. There's no panic. There's no real fear. It's just, here I go. I'm off. And he just, uh, it's like Liam Neeson in, the, in Taken. It's God saying, I have a particular set of skills. I will find you. And I will save you. That's the shepherd. He's dutiful. He just gets up. I don't know how far I got to go. Liam Neeson was patient. He had to, you know, that's God for you. Then you have this woman who loses a coin. In my head, I see her as a single woman because, because she's desperate for this coin. She probably is a typical woman in that day who didn't have a man in her life, and any amount of money would have meant everything to her because they didn't last in that culture. If you lose one-tenth of what you have, he leaves nine, the shepherd leaves 99, she's losing one of her ten. That could be a day, a week, a month of her life extended if she can find that coin. So she lights a light. She panics a little bit more. She's, she's a woman. She panics a little bit, and she's emotional, and she's unlike the shepherd who's just, I have skills. <laughs> this woman is tearing the house up. She lights, she, all more verbs on her than anything. She tears, she lights a light, gets out the broom, sweeping that place till she finds it. So there's panic in her voice. So here's God pictured sort of panicky. Like a woman who's wondering do I have another week to, to make it in this society? Huh? Nobody finds things like a woman does. All right, my kids, when they uh, were little, all growing up, when when they were hurt, they came to me. Because Gail laughs at pain. It's a weird disorder. (laughs) It's a very weird disorder. But the boys and I, when we lost something, when we need something, when we can't find something, I don't care if it's a spice in the cabinet or your phone, you go to mom. Mom cares, and she'll tear the house apart to find it. Dad, well, I hope you find it, son. (laughs) I hope you get it. So you got a panicky. This is God panicked. Then you have the father, the, the heartbroken father, the one we're probably most familiar with. He's patient. So you got this dutiful shepherd. You have this sort of desperate woman. And then you have this heartbroken father. And every parent can relate. And all he does is wait and watch. He just has to wait and watch. And you picture God either dutifully taking off or tearing up a house or standing there waiting. He's either one of them. And in this particular case, the father, in that culture, you would expect the stories when they're heard by the people, they would have said, we expect a woman to tear the house up for that coin because she's going to... That's exactly what she would do. We expect the sheep or the shepherd to, to, to leave the 99 for the sheep because that's, that's what he would do. We would not accept the father. We would not believe for a moment. It wouldn't happen in our culture. It's as far-fetched as anything you can imagine that a Jewish father, the patriarch of the family, would be so offended by a son wanting his inheritance early, which would never happen, and then get it in cash and blow it and want back in. Never happened in Jewish culture. Here's here's God acting recklessly, literally violating every cultural boundary you can fathom because he loves that kid. He's going to get laughed at. He's going to do things that he's going to lose dignity in, in multiple ways in the story because Jewish men didn't even run. He runs. He takes back, throws a party over this kid when this son comes back. It was unheard of. The magnitude of God's grace is mostly pictured in the father's response. But all I want to do today with all that in mind, let's talk to you a little bit about the shepherd and the sheep. And I only want to give one application mainly and pull that out for us. Here's how I want us to start 2022 and how I want our heartbeat for that one that's lost to begin, where we Have, start with, start with, just start with, right here when we're together in this room, because we're together seven, one every seven days, to heighten our awareness and enthusiasm for what God might do on a Sunday morning if someone's there who might be that one. That's what I want to start with. So, I'm going to orient my thoughts around it. Heighten our awareness and enthusiasm for Sunday mornings in light of the fact that there might be one and hope that that enthusiasm spills out into the week when we leave. So, Hillside, what are we looking for when we come together? What are we looking for? And what are we rejoicing in? What makes this group of people the happiest? I read a book uh, couple months ago called Numbers Don't Lie by Vaclav Smil. It was a Bill Gates recommendation, which he did 10, rec- 10 books at the beginning of every summer, and I grabbed those. Uh, 71 stories to help us understand the modern world. It's an eye-opening little book. And most of his stuff, to be honest, is, is inaccessible. It's just really hard to read, but this is readable. Uh, and he covers a range of topics in this book uh, that concern us these days, like population, food supply, the environment, energy, uh, all this stuff that we're all trying to figure out what to do. And it's really like a fact-finding adventure that challenges conventional wisdom. Well, I know what you've been thinking about that, but let me show you the numbers. And so his intention is... To understand the true state of the world. Quit imagining and look at the numbers. That's his goal. To demonstrate not only that numbers do not lie, but to discover which truth they convey. What truth do those numbers communicate? So one of them is, one of the ideas that he hits among many is America is not nearly as exceptional compared to the rest of the world. When you look at the numbers. Electric cars are not as great as we think. When you look at the numbers. And then there are tidbits of information all the way through that are fun. Like, what do you think is the most innovative decade we've had since America has started? Think about what you might think. I'm not giving you this one. You're going to go find that one. You're going to get the book. All right. But it's not what you think. The most innovative decade. All right. Well, numbers don't lie. There are numbers in this text. And I want you to see them. You have 99 in the one. You have she loses one of her 10 coins. And then the father obviously loses one of his sons. So the one is the issue in all of them. So here you have, you know, like a 1%, and then here you have 10%, and then here you have 50%. Those numbers are saying something in the parables. It's a very clear message. And most of the time, we'd be happy with any of these figures. Like if you had 99 and you lost one, you'd think that was a great day. Uh... One out of two ain't bad. We even have a saying for that. Or how about eh, 10% down? Nine to the good? Oh, that's pretty good. In fact, we would consider ourselves quite successful in business and in church work. And here's essentially what the numbers say. God's not satisfied with any of those percentages. God is not satisfied with any of those percentages. Because we could easily say, and we do it unconsciously, and sometimes, look around, we got a pretty good group here. Who's worried about one? What more could you want, God? But in each case, one is what matters to God. There was a commentator I read, was reading. He said he was at work studying and his son, his little boy, under 10 years old, called him and said, Dad, what are you doing? I'd like you to come home. He said, son, I'm studying for a message. I'm in Luke 15 and I'm studying it. And he goes, "Ah, okay, well then at least I'll read that. And his dad says, well, why don't you just jot something down that really matters after you read it, and I'll see what you said. He goes, all right, I'll do that. He comes home in his (laughs) day. And this is what he said his little boy wrote down. It is not the same to have one out of two. Because that's how you could say it. Or 99 out of 100. 99 out of 100 showed up. That's never happened in church work, by the way. (laughs) Where 99 out of 100 showed up. Or 9 out of 10. Here's what the boy said, because it makes the biggest difference to have even one small thing missing to God. I remember in India, when we were in India, since Kirk's here, I remember when one of the girls, one of the teenage girls, got called back to her family. And we knew it was going to be a devastating thing. It would be a horrible thing if she, if she left the, you know, the uh, hostel and went back to her family. It was going to mean her devastation, really. And I remember we changed our whole trip around, went to one of the riskiest places you could be, brought our whole group there, met around that family and tried to get her back. Time after time after time. We did all of that. Ended up having to leave there fast because it started to get scary. Because it was a it's a pretty bad place where people buy and sell women. We were taking one of theirs. We did all that for one, one girl. Who else in this room doesn't think it's irresponsible to leave 99 and go find one? Let's face it, there's a lot to do for 99, and we all feel that immediately. You gotta organize 99, communicate with 99, you gotta rally 99, you gotta clean up after 99, you gotta guide 99, protect 99. That's church work. So many things to measure. We have 25 staff here. We've got meetings all week long trying to figure out how to make sure that we have everything on point so we can operate. It is non-stop. It's nonstop. It is exceptionally easy for operations to supersede, eclipse, even eliminate the mission. Hey, don't forget about the one. We're always looking for something around here. We're looking for resources. We're looking for partners. We're looking for volunteers. We're looking for leaders. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking. God's looking for the one. He's trying to drill that into the hearts of these people. We've got to have it drilled in our hearts. I haven't emphasized it enough. I was watching, uh, recently watched uh, 14 Peaks on Netflix. I've seen it twice now, I've recommended it many times. It's a documentary on a climber, it is profoundly phenomenal. I hope you watch it if you haven't. It's about a no- a uh, f- little fellow from Nepal, Nims Purje. He's a climber. And uh, there are 14 peaks in the world clustered in three different locations, like Nepal, Pakistan, and Tibet. 14 peaks over 8,000 feet. After 8,000, you're in the death zone. Everest is obviously the tallest. People spend their whole lives trying to figure out how to climb Everest. Many don't. Many die. The 14 peaks, for about 100 years, people have wanted to try to climb all of them. Who could climb all of them? And a guy named Mesner, years ago, climbed all 14 peaks in a 16-year period. Then some guy came along and did it in seven years. Then somebody came along, and it's Nims who said, I want to do it in seven months. Now, listen, it takes two months to plan a climb. Some, the toll on you after a climb is just beyond. You have to recover from that. It takes uh, months to plan. There's planning, and, and in a case like this where you're going to do this in this amount of time, you've got planning, you've got a team you've got to have, you've got logistics, you've got equipment, travel, fundraising, you've got to monitor weather, you, the toll on your body after each climb. Some climbs take four days. He had to do in 21 hours in order to be in order to stay on pace. It's absolutely remarkable. After this first climb they come down, they're on Antipurge. They come down this first climb, they're exhausted after this first one and uh, they get down to a, a base camp and they're exhausted, they're on a tight schedule and somebody announces to them that there's a climber that's still on the mountain and he's gonna die if we don't get to him by tonight. So he and his four guys say, well, we'll do it. Well, what's it going to take? Well, you can't climb back up there. You don't have the energy. So we're going to helicopter each one of you hanging. You're going to dangle over this mountain that you have just climbed at this altitude, exhausted from the climb. They said they were slapping themselves to stay awake. And they would literally helicopter each of the four guys up to a certain spot, and then they would climb the rest to the gap. Each one of them had to dangle over that. All these incredibly fearless men were so scared to hang on that helicopter. That was like what really scared them. But all four of them went up there. And they had to do it before nightfall because the helicopter can't fly at night. And they had to get this guy back down to a place where the helicopter could get him and then bring him by helicopter and then each one of the guys again by helicopter. It was, it was just, it made what was already ridiculous that much more ridiculous. One of the climbers who was there and watched as this other group of people who no one else volunteered to go get him he said bravery doesn't describe what those guys had to go back up that mountain he says you finally summit it was my first summit my only summit i probably not have any other summit he says you finally summit the most one of the most dangerous mountains in the world and you got to go back up it's a roll of the dice it's a true risk And Nimsperger just said this. What if it was me? What if it was me? I don't care how many climbers. I don't care how many mountains. I don't care what the goal is. I don't care how long it's going to take you to reach the goal. Whatever else you have to do. Plan, travel. You stop it all for one guy. He did that three times in these climbs. One of them is incredibly remarkable search and rescue. So that's how I want us to be. I want us to figure out, hey, we got goals. We got things we got to do around here. I don't ever want us to forget the one. That's why we do all the other stuff. And if you have to set it aside for the one, you set it aside. So what that means, I think, Three things it means for us that I'd like you to begin to doing. I'll keep the challenge before you. I am making it my personal mission to make sure as a church that one matters to us more than anything else that we do around here. And I'll tell you what, I really believe it'll take some of that grumbling, you know, the grumbling we do when we're together, you know, the grumbling. Why didn't they have that? That went too late. This one's too long. We don't have enough of that. What happened to the coffee? Where's the, you know, all that grumbling we do. If we're worried about the one, we'll do less of that. Here's the application. Here's the first thing I want you to begin doing. Just start doing. During the week, actually pray for who might show up Sunday morning. You know there's people in this room who are inviting friends all the time. And I just want you to begin saying, I can't wait to get there because I don't know who's showing up. I don't know if he might cross my path or she might cross my path, but I hope so. And I'm praying for them to come. I'm praying. And when you drive into church, pray for that. You'll worry less about where you park or how fast you can get out. Just start praying when you drive on here. I wonder who's going to be here today. Just start praying about it. And I'm telling you, if you start praying about that, God's going to start bringing ones across your path. The second thing is just rally when we get together. We serve. All of us, many of us serve. I, I hope you serve somewhere. But if you do, I hope you don't ever think it's the biggest thing. You know, I mean, our children's ministry, they kill themselves to get ready for a week. You can see what it takes to pull off a weekend over there. It's a lot of work during the week. And we talk about it regularly here. We have been about, you know, do you have enough crayons? Do you have enough this? Do you have enough that? And who didn't show? And blah, 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 blah. And I mean, it's a mess to, to manage. And I said, we got to be able to drop everything when that one person comes to the classroom with their child and it's their first Sunday. That's our one. I don't care what the classroom looks like. I don't care what else happens. we got to be able to drop all of the aggravation and focus on the one. no matter what we're doing. I don't care if we're serving coffee, greeting people out in the parking lot. We never go into any station anymore in the life of this church where it's not the one that's on our mind. All the teams at Hillside, because we've been dealing with this now for two months behind the scenes as leaders. You're going to start to feel it because there's not one staff person who runs a team in this church that isn't making the one the focus now. And I want it to trickle down to the Average person walking in on a Sunday morning is thinking about the one. And then, God help us, maybe a one crosses your path, you get to meet them. Maybe they're sitting next to you. I don't know, you just meet them somewhere. But you're not going to be afraid anymore to start a conversation. How about some bold conversations? We're calling them in our staff gospel conversations. We need to start being a little more bold about what we say. We've got to notice the one, we've got to engage the one, and we've got to be willing to converse the one. The one. Um, listen, the reason I said let's start with Sunday morning is because if you start really getting passionate about the one here, you'll get passionate about the one there. And then pretty soon you'll be inviting the one you brought them. really tempting, and I have had this temptation, and I've fell for it a couple times, to think these days, these days, nobody's looking for God. And maybe you haven't said that out loud, but maybe you're living like it. You're living like, nobody's looking. Let me say something to you. God is. God's looking. And he's not going to stop looking. He'll look right over us for that one. And I'll tell you something else. I'll give you a little secret. I wish I could tell you about four stories, but I can't. Because they're sitting here. We have ones here. They're here. So I ask you, i say, what are we looking for? When we come on this campus, what are we looking for? I know you can look for fellowship, you can look for this, you can look for that, you can look for this. I'm saying God's looking for one. We need to be looking for one. Whatever else we're looking for. Here's the second thing. What are we rejoice in? I hope we don't rejoice in elections more than the one or anything else, I want us to have this joy, this partying kind of joy. Do you know that about God, that he's a partier? Like, would you have ever said, if you were sitting around a party and God was there and he said, let me introduce myself, yeah, my name's God and uh, I like to party. Would you have ever, could you have imagined ever hearing that? One person who comes home to God, it feels like the discovery of a lifetime. And I think if we really begin to value the one, really, we will experience and begin to expect that kind of joy to be here. And Hillside, let's face it, we should be we should be experiencing more of these kinds of celebrations. We should be seeing people. More people. More people come to Christ through this church. There's too much great stuff here. There's too many great people here. God is definitely present here. Maybe we have to get bolder. We have to have more conversations. It has to be more on our heart. But, it's, but more people should be coming to Christ. So I want us just to begin praying, God, bring people to you through this church so we can celebrate with you on that. Because you might not realize Jesus is happy. While while Christians are grumbling, Jesus is happy. So if you're here, You might be one of the ones. And I don't know how you got here or why or how far away from God you feel. How unlikely you think it is that you would ever really want a close relationship to him. I don't know how unlikely that is in your mind. You should know. That he's looking for you, that he's coming for you, and that he's willing to do whatever. He'll go on a long methodical search to find you. He'll tear up your life to find you, or he'll just stand at the door and wait for you to come home. He'll do any one of those three things. He's probably doing them in your life now. He's probably doing one of those. You know, like a shepherd crossing all kinds of terrain, or a woman desperate to recover a coin, whatever it is. Let me just say this. Here's the beautiful thing about the three stories God says, This is what God's like. But God has gone far, much farther than a shepherd went, much farther than a woman went, and much farther than a Jewish father went. He left heaven to come to earth. He left the throne to come to a cross. He left behind some part of his divinity to become a human being. No one has gone farther. Go as far as you want to go. No one's gone farther than God to find the lost. That's how far he came for you. That's how far he came for me. And so I have two simple things to say to you. Number one, quit running, let him find you. That dumb sheep. You keep running. Keep going. Let that shepherd find you. That's what I would say. That means stop running. And the second thing you can do, and I think, in light of the stories is, You can get up and you can come to him. Just like the son did. Got up out of that pigsty and he headed home to the father, crossing his fingers. God would do something for him. So, why don't you bow your heads? For those of you who are here and you're part of Hillside, and I know your heart beats, I I know this is what you know is true and you want it to be true. Let's make it be true. Let's just make this be true. Let's all go ahead and say, yeah, I don't think that's been the number one thing on my mind. And let's go ahead and start making it the number one thing on our minds with everything we do. And number two, anyone in this room who's one of those ones, I just want to say, as we start off this year, I want to give you the most passionate plea I can. See Jesus for who he really is. Because he is so much more, has done so much more, and loves you so much more than you can possibly know. Father, my prayer is for that one who's just looking, investigating, thinking, wondering, a little scared. Doesn't know what to do. What? What do I do? Lord, I remember. It feels so complicated. It's so simple. All I did was just stop and say, God. I don't want to run anymore. Take me. Bring me into that house. Celebrate with me. Change my life. I recognize that you have gone as far as anyone can go. You have given your life for mine. And you won't take into account wherever it is I've been. Pray that prayer and ask Him into your life. I pray this in Jesus' name.